0: You are listening to the India in Focus podcast, jointly brought to you by the Lakshmi Mittal and Family South Asia Institute at Harvard University and the Times of India. Hello and welcome to this episode of the India in Focus podcast. I am Sanjay Kumar, the India Country Director at Harvard's Lakshmi Mittal and Family South Asia Institute. For our inaugural episode, we are joined by Jacqueline Bhaba, who is a Professor of Health and Human Rights at the Harvard School of Public Health. She is also the director of research at the FXB Center for Health and Human Rights. Her current research focuses on adolescents at risk of violence, social exclusion or discrimination. She is actively engaged in several research projects in India, examining the factors that drive access of low caste girls from illiterate families to higher education and that transform gender norms among children and adolescents. Professor Bhava, welcome to the podcast. Across the world, children are at risk from violence, abuse, exploitation and neglect. Conflict and natural disasters have forced millions to flee their homes and face the dangers of migration and displacement. How should we address the challenge of managing large-scale distressed migration?
1: Uh, well, thank you first of all, uh, Sanjay, it's very nice to be in conversation with you. So um, the problem of large scale or distress migration is really an enormous one, both in terms of intra-country migration and cross-border migration. So in terms of cross-border now at the moment in 2020, we're seeing about um, 30 million people who've been forced from their homes and forced to leave their own countries for a range of reasons. Um, so they've left not out of choice, but because they felt they couldn't survive or they couldn't have a future. And um, at least one-third of this population are children, and when I say children, I mean people under the age of 18. That's how child is defined in international law. So this is a very huge number, and it means that for millions of children and their families across the world, life uh, has brings with it... Enormous challenges, and so I think there several very basic problems that um, distress migration raises from a human rights and a health perspective. First of all, when people leave their own country, um, often they are forced to leave with very little. Sometimes they're right. literally fleeing for their lives right. in situations of war. You know, we all have seen the images from Syria. Um, or the images of Rohingya close right, to right. India, you know, in, in Bangladesh. So people are literally leaving. Maybe they managed to grab their passports or their, you know, few treasured possessions. They're leaving with very little. So even people who are qualified, people who have had comfortable lives, people who've been used to living in a certain way, may find themselves in extremely harsh situations. So there's an enormous challenge there for people who are used to having running water who are used to having you know a comfortable life and of course then many of the people who are forced into the most arduous journeys are poorer people who don't have the option of buying a visa or buying an air ticket and so the journeys are very hazardous so if you combine the difficulty of leaving And the difficulty of the journey, where you don't have family, where you don't have any means of protection, there are enormous challenges presented. And these are challenges for individuals, but they're also challenges for states. States have obligations to protect people who are fleeing from humanitarian challenges. But we have not done a good job. We have done quite a poor job, so in many cases, and I was just recently, I was in Cox's Bazaar, uh, you know, some months ago seeing the Rohingya refugees, and before, more recently I've been also in Greece seeing Syrian refugees living, I mean, the lives in the camps are very harsh, and the children themselves face many, many challenges. So. States have obligations at least to create a safe environment to provide basic needs for shelter, for health care, um, for food, water. But on top of that, health states also should have a responsibility to provide education, for example, and we see that many of these children are not getting an education. So, you know, some people talk about a lost generation. You can imagine if children for years are out of school, This creates a a dreadful basis for the future of their lives. They don't have a skill set, they don't even have a sense of belonging, of purpose. So these are some of the challenges that we're facing.
0: And uh, what do you think have been the main challenges that come in the way of providing safe asylum to refugee children? And what do you also see as response by the international agencies?
1: we've seen a mixture of responses i think many of us as human rights people tend to focus on the bad things i mean we have also seen some wonderful examples you know i suppose the best example is germany in 2015 where over a million people were admitted and i was just just in germany last week talking to some colleagues including senior colleagues in government they've really done quite a remarkable job of including refugees right. now a high proportion are earning mm-hmm. And people are learning the language. Of course, nobody is homeless. So there are some really good examples where there's political will. Of course, we know Chancellor Merkel herself said, you right. know, we can do this. She created a, a can do attitude. Of course, Germany has its own history, which also I think made the population particularly receptive in a way to kind of clear the stain of, you know, of 20th century Germany and what had happened. So if there is political will, If there's public support, Mm -hmm. uh, you can do a lot because actually refugees and forced migrants generally are the more able and the more dynamic among their populations. It's not the poorest of the poor. It's not the most fragile or the most vulnerable who leave. It's usually the most entrepreneurial, often young, healthy, determined, ambitious. So there's a huge human dividend there you you can try to reap. The trouble, of course, is that um, political will is hard to sustain. And we've seen this in Germany, we've seen this elsewhere. So it's always a regular trope in political life that you know, scapegoating outsiders is a very convenient tool for p- political leaders to cover problems they're having domestically. And we see, we've seen this again and again. Unfortunately, we're I think also seeing this in this country. So you know, it's easy to blame outsiders for political problems that occur within your own within your own country. And so this unfortunately is what we're seeing now. We've seen this now across Europe. We're seeing this in Bangladesh where Bangladeshis were very welcoming initially to the Rohingya. We are seeing this in Turkey. Again, Turks were very welcoming to Syrians. So one of the problems in answer to your question, Sanjay, is you know political leadership is often not sustained. And instead of that, you get xenophobia, you get a mm-hmm. kind of leveraging of hostility. Mm-hmm. And of course, if you have that, and you incentivize, you know, the dark side of people, and everybody has a good side and a bad side, if you incentivize that dark side, then the political will and the effort to include and and welcome and, you know, incorporate the benefits of a new population are lost. And so I think, unfortunately, we're often seeing this, that where there could be a huge gain, a brain gain, a personnel gain, a youth gain, instead we're seeing this rise of hostility, we're seeing ghettoization of new arrived refugees or forced migrants in very unsavory uh, circumstances where there's crime, where there's lack of employment, where there's hatred, and then of course it's a vicious right, right, right. So states have, to my mind, states have a huge responsibility. You mentioned international organizations and certainly International organizations, humanitarian organizations in particular, have been very involved. You know, the most obvious is UNHCR, United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, Mm -hmm. but UNICEF and International Organization of Migration and UNDP, many others have also been involved. At the end of the day though, it is going to be states not the international community that's correct, yeah. who are going to sustain that's these populations. Correct, yeah. International community can do so much. Yeah. You know, you can create a situation of sort of dependence where you're supporting a population in a refugee mm-hmm. camp for a while, but that's not a yeah. permanent situation, yeah, and yeah. we wouldn't want it to be a permanent situation. So ultimately, however able the international community is, and at the end of the day, the international community is made up of states, so states have to give the money, states have to contribute. That's correct, yeah. Um, But at the end of the day, these are political decisions that states or regions make, and there's only so much the UN can do to patch up
0: the gaps. That's correct. So, according to you, how can we make sure that the rights and safety of children and young people are preserved as they undertake migration? Can you suggest some of the things?
1: Yeah, I think you know there's a lot of expertise on this and we should be doing much better than we are because despite what people say, child migration is not a new thing. Children have always migrated. Right, right. It's true that the visibility of unaccompanied child migration has increased. You know, we've seen this, of course, at the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, we've seen this in other places, with, with, you know, Afghan young people, with Pakistani boys, with um, people coming from from sub-Saharan Africa. But it's not a new phenomenon. And so we should, uh, and, and people like myself and many others have been talking for a long time about what needs to be done to make the situation better. But so far. We haven't made much, uh, enough progress. So what I think we should be doing are several things. First of all, we should think of these migrant children, first of all, as children, which sounds mm-hmm. very banal. Right. But in practice, it's not banal, because it means that if you have an un- unaccompanied child, whatever their nationality, the state the organizations that care for children should have a responsibility to that child. So yes, for example, correct. you have an unaccompanied Rohingya child fleeing Myanmar, right. coming into Bangladesh. Right. That child, first and foremost, should be the responsibility of the Bangladeshi Child Welfare Organization because it's a right. child,
0: Yeah,
1: shouldn't be, put into some refugee department or police department or migration department who know nothing about children. It should be the specialists who deal with children. That's number one. So domestic child welfare systems should include within them people whose responsibility it is to incorporate the needs of Mm -hmm. migrant and refugee children. That's number one. We don't really do that. Very few countries do that. Mm -hmm. There's still a kind of segregation. Secondly um, where children arrive accompanied, they need to be, of course, accommodated with their families. They should not be separated from their families, sure. like we saw you know, in the U.S. recently. Sure. You can't detain yeah. the parents and take little toddlers away. I right. mean, it was an obscenity. So parents and children should be kept together, families should be kept right. together, um, and should be looked after as families, and they should not be detained. Children should not be detained where they have not been charged with a criminal offence. It's never acceptable to detain a child just because he or she does not have a, a, a you know, a documented migration status, and right. yet that happens all the time. So that's the second point: shouldn't detain children? Should keep families together, not in detention. And there are lots of ways of making sure that you keep track of them. If you're worried they're going to disappear, there are ways of keeping sure they can report to police station. This day and age, with cell phones, you know where people are. Right, it's not right. a mystery. Right. Thirdly, every unaccompanied child. Every unaccompanied child should have someone who is allocated like a guardian or somebody in place of a parent, in Latin they say in loco parentis. Somebody who has that responsibility, like we would do for a domestic child who's in care. So somebody who's responsible for helping the child find accommodation, helping the child get a lawyer, helping the child get into school, protecting the child from exploitation or violence. What happens instead is that many of these children, particularly the teenagers, are on their own. And so, you know, I mentioned Mm -hmm. being recently in Greece, we see children, regrettably, children even selling sex in -hmm. order to get money Mm -hmm. to cope. Mm -hmm. Because there's nobody looking after them. They're not really properly attended to. Some of them have a lot of pressure from their families to send money back. Mm -hmm. Some children feel the pressure to move on from where they are to a better place and they Mm -hmm. want to get money to pay smugglers. For whatever reason, this is a very big problem. Mm -hmm. And of course, in other situations, it's not the children who are deciding or whatever, it's adults who are taking advantage. And we've seen this in Mexico now, where there are very large numbers of unaccompanied children and the gangs, the cartels, the drug lords are using these migrant children. So you need to have Responsibility for unaccompanied children, whether right. they're your nationals or not, it doesn't matter. Right. Um, ultimately, in future, these are going to be your yeah, yeah, of members course. of your population. Of course. So I would say these are very, very basic starting points that right. you
0: should, you know, you should, right. Um, you should ensure. Right, right. So you spoke about this in some of these international border issues and the migrants' issues. So what, according to you? Uh, are some of the challenges related to children protection unique to South Asia?
1: So, you know, South Asia has huge strengths and huge weaknesses. I mean, there's an enormously young population. Mm-hmm. Um, so, there's an enormous opportunity for growth, for right. exploration. And we've seen that. We've right. seen the unbelievable success of so many South Asians in right. the. Obviously, everybody talks about the IT field, but I think, you know, those of us who work in American universities, you see it, I mean, and these are not just wealthy kids, you know, South Asian kids who've done so well because there's a strong family, there's a strong support for education, there's very good sense of, you know, investing Mm -hmm. in, in, in the child, in the future of the family. So I think these are all very strong assets that South Asia has, which other areas do not have. I mean, in Europe you have a really sharp demographic decline. Mm -hmm. Even countries like Mexico now is beginning to decline. So this is an asset. It means that you you have young people who have enormous potential. The downside, of course, is that there are very many serious child protection issues which are still sadly not addressed. Some of them are closely related to gender. Some are closely related to caste, and many are related to poverty and Mm -hmm. inequality, I would say. Those are the three factors. So, start with gender. Um, You know, still unacceptably high rates of child marriage. When I say child marriage, I mean girl child marriage. Right. Um, rates have come down, the right. situation has improved, but I think over 20% of 18-year-olds in, in India right. are still married. Right, now that's very high, if you think of the yeah. B- yeah. size of the country. Mm-hmm. We're talking about mm-hmm. millions of girls. And of course, marriage is not just marriage. Marriage is then the risk or whatever, of pregnancy, yeah. early yeah. pregnancy, which is dangerous yeah. if you're very young. Of course, heightened risk of violence if you're a young girl right. in a family. So child marriage is... Something which is still a very pervasive norm, yeah. Yeah. and in South Asia, South Asia is not the only region in the world. There are parts yeah. of Sub-Saharan Africa, yeah. Chad, for example, where there are very high high rates of child marriage. But it's something that there's a long way to go.
0: Yeah.
1: And I would say other related issues. I already mentioned, of course, domestic violence, rape. Whether because increased reporting, or whether because of you know increased kind of movement in modern life. Rape is one of the fastest growing crimes in India. So as I say, it may be an artifact of the Nirbaya case and the fact that now more people are reporting. Right. But it may also be that more girls are now, you know, going to college and going out of the home. So that's one factor. So I think all these gender related challenges to children are very they're not unique to South Asia, but they are definitely a feature of South Asian life. You know, these gendered norms about family, about the position of girls, you know. Secondly, I would say caste. Caste, unfortunately, uh, is a, particularly an Indian problem, continues to absolutely dominate right. life chances for children, right. even though it's not meant to, even though, you know, I don't know how long ago Ambedkar lived, and we have a wonderful constitution in India. But the inequalities, caste-based inequalities are still pervasive and we are all familiar the cases that we read in the papers even of, you know, cases of people who despite their caste manage to make it, you know, that young doctor and then they get attacked and so right. on. So caste is a very distinctive South Asian problem, which unfortunately is still a long way from being solved. And I think now, you know, that this current climate uh, is not helping at all. There's an increase in tribalism, there's an increase in religious hostility, which of course ricochets on children and children's life chances and children's sense of, of safety. And then lastly, just overall inequality. You know, we know that India has increased its middle class dramatically. We know that, I don't know if it's the fifth or sixth largest economy in the world. I mean, India is an absolute behemoth of, of yeah. productivity, of you know, of, of, of entrepreneurial and industrial success. And yet, so many of the poorest people in the world live in this country. So, I mean, it's not just India. Also, price other parts of South Asia, but I'm most familiar with India. So, I think that, you know, growing India rising has not been combined with reducing inequality and this means that children's life chances are extremely unequal and that's still an issue. It's an issue about quality of education, quality even of food, of access to health care, right. access to jobs, right. the whole gamut. Right.
0: I think you, you touched upon several issues and the role of education is very important where they are forced to leave their education and uh, that leads to number of issues they become dependent on and especially the girls, you know, so that is also a big issue in and around India and in South Asia.
1: I think you're right. I think education is a huge issue. And of course, here too, it's not, you know, the glass, you can say the glass is half empty or half full. I mean, there's been enormous progress in education in India. You know, when the British left, the situation was a disaster, absolute disaster. Now, you know, whatever, 75 years after independence or whatever we are, you know, there's much greater access. Over 90% of children have access to school. The, the, even secondary school enrollment right. has increased, college enrollment is increasing, right. but there are still so many children who, whether it's marriage, whether it's seasonal migration right. or other reasons, you know, there's so many, I think it, I mean, 60, 70 million people are seasonal migrants in India. That means that, you know, seven months of the year, the whole yeah, family yeah. moves to That's the salt right. mines or the yeah. sugar cane or cotton or quarries or whatever, and then they move back during the monsoon. So, of course, that kind of undermines the possibility of education. So I think even though there's been so much progress in the age context, um, there are also still so many challenges, including, you know, cost, and safety, and many issues like that. Right, right. So there's a long way to go. Right,
0: right. Professor Baba, you have been leading a course on child protection under Harvard X. Would you like to share a bit about that and how uh, people working in this field can be benefited or enrolled? If you can sure, provide some insights. Yes, I'd be
1: pleased to, you, Sanjay. So Harvard X is a very good initiative, I think, which makes available, free of charge to anybody, um, the expertise of um, people who work and teach at Harvard, researchers and professors. And there are many courses, the one that I did with several colleagues uh, is a Harvard X course on child protection, as you said. And it's quite a systematic um, course which introduces people to... The concept of child protection, what does it mean? What are the main issues? It talks about children. It's not just about children in general. It's not about children's health or vaccination or child development. It's about child protection as a specific subset of issues dealing with abuse, violence, exploitation of children. So where are these problems seen? What causes them and what can be done about it? And so the course looks at this. It gives... A framing of the international law that's relevant in a way that's very accessible. You don't have to be a lawyer to understand it. It has very good graphics right. and it has readings attached so right. you can listen to the lecture and then there's a reading list and you can right. click on it and you can read. Right. Um, and then there's an opportunity for questions where you can ask yourself questions to see if you've understood the materials. So um, I would encourage people who are interested. We have a lot of experts who we've interviewed in the course of yeah. this course. Uh, people from the UN various advocates who talk about different issues we've had people from south asia and is it also
0: th- useful for young students who want yeah, to work in the so. child rights field
1: very useful for young students who want to work in the child rights field people who are interested in international law people who are interested in maybe in issues like child marriage right. or trafficking uh, you know so many different issues conflict war children affected and do they like get war? any certificate so I think you can get some sort of credential. Okay. Yeah, okay. I mean, obviously it's not
0: a classroom it's teaching. Not a yeah. classroom yeah. teaching.
1: Yeah, of course. There's no uh, professor doesn't give an input or grade you. Yeah. But the, there's peer-to-peer grading and, and collaboration. And I know that literally hundreds of thousands of people are involved in these courses. And I think it's a very good experience.
0: Wonderful. So I would wonderful. to look at it. Oh, wonderful. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, could you please uh, tell us more about uh, your work with the Rohingya community, uh, very briefly? Yes, if you can touch yes. Up on so that.
1: we've been very fortunate, um, actually, thanks to the Mittal Institute colleagues as well, to have a partnership with BRAC. And as I'm sure many people listening will know, BRAC is the largest right. NGO in the world. They're right. a very impressive um, you know, community based organization which started in Bangladesh many years ago after terrible floods and is now really a model of sort of social entrepreneurship if you like. So we work with BRAC in the context of our work uh, with Rohingya uh, children and adolescents in the Rohingya camps in Cox's Bazaar which mm-hmm. is in the, in the Chittagong kind of area of, of southeast Bangladesh. And we've been doing uh, a project, we've more or less uh, developed now a curriculum which um, is to be used. In the learning centers, which Mm -hmm. is really the kind of synonym for school, but you're not meant to call them schools because the Bangladeshi government doesn't want Rohingya children to be seen to be going to school. So these are learning centers set up by the humanitarian community. But in these learning centers, there's a very rudimentary curriculum. What we've done is added to that rudimentary curriculum a life skills component. And this is not just an optional extra. The idea of the life skills component is that if you, like these young children and young people, have had really traumatic and extraordinarily painful experiences in your early life, Mm -hmm. like they have, maybe seeing relatives murdered and being raped and being forced to leave your home with nothing uh, and then coming and living in a very harsh condition in what was you know just basically a forest Um, if you've had that then you really need tools to manage uh, your own emotions and your own um, ability if you're going to be able to be resilient otherwise it's you know likely that you are going to suffer so these life skills are really quite simple tools for enabling children and young people to set targets, to prioritize certain goals, to deal with aggression and adversity in constructive ways, Mm -hmm. to listen, to um, be resilient. I mean, there are all sorts of ways, you know, making friendships and groups rather than enmities. So we've developed um, a curriculum, and I'm happy to say that this is now being presented to the colleagues in the education sector in in Cox's, because it's just been presented, actually. And we're very hopeful that this will be rolled out then in 30 schools to start with. The BRAC colleagues will roll this out, so we'll train the trainers. Mm -hmm. And then the idea is that this will be a model which will spread to all the About 600,000 children now in Cox's Bazaar. So this is an enormous enterprise. And I must say, for all the problems that there are, the problems are enormous, it's also very Mm -hmm. impressive that Mm -hmm. this poor country, Bangladesh, has managed
0: to
1: absorb in some sort of way, not ideal at all, but at least create a safe space for so many people, for over a million people. So that's what we've done. We would like to now develop more work with, um, with young women There's an enormous need there, both for adolescent girls and also for young women who are married. There's huge needs on health-related issues, sexual reproductive health, Mm -hmm. but also mental health issues, also issues of skill, of work. So I think the work that's offered there is, again, pretty rudimentary. It's just like craft, which is nothing wrong with craft, I love craft work, but it's not really a solution to having an income generating future and so Mm -hmm. there are many other skills I think these young women could be taught. So there's a lot to be done and I think that maybe for us would be the next chapter we'd like to work on.
0: Wonderful. So all the best uh, for your uh, project and uh, it was a pleasure to host you for this podcast and thank you for sharing your insights. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you for tuning in. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify and SoundCloud and check out past episodes by visiting our show page at Institute.harvard.edu slash India in Focus podcast. Until next time.